In the podcast that follows, two people who should know better consistently mispronounce the word nanometer. We apologize for the inconvenience. Hello, everyone. You're listening to Fiat Lex, a podcast about dictionaries by people who write them. I'm Steve Kleinedler. And I am Corey Stamper. And we're here today to talk to you about hard words. But first, a little bit of business. We are so grateful that you're listening. Thank you so much for listening. And if you continue to listen, or even if you don't continue to listen, hey, head on over to iTunes or to Google Play or wherever and give our podcast a good rating because that means that you're actually interested and then we'll keep doing it. Yes, thank you in advance for that. And some people already have. And yes. if you have, thank you for that. You guys are awesome. The Yay. best. So yeah, hard words. Let's talk about hard words for some time. Well, uh, what the general population who cares about dictionaries, which we have said in the past is smaller than... We would like, but certainly everyone who listens to this, what they think of as hard words and what lexicographers think of as hard words are very different. They are. Absolutely. So most people think of hard words as being uh, words that are hard to spell or hard to say or that have weird meanings. So like, you know, spelling bee words or words like pneumono uh, ultramicroscopic silicovolcanoconiosis. Do they make all of the Merriam-Webster editors memorize how to pronounce that word? <laughs> it's technically banned by the Geneva Conventions, but but yes, that is part of your training. You have to learn how to do it. We had one editor who could actually, I think she sang it to the William Tell Overture. I don't, I don't know. She was amazing. And Becca, if you're listening, thank you for, thank you for your service. Anyway, so can you pronounce that one more time? Pneumono ultramicroscopic silicovolcanoconiosis. And that's some type of lung disease that miners get? It's Yeah, it's supposedly it's a lung disease of quartz miners. But so this word is called P45. And actually, P45 was a word coined by the National Puzzlers League to trick Merriam-Webster. And it worked. It ended up in and now it's sort of established. That word itself or the word P45? Uh, no, that word itself. Pneumon ultramicroscopic silicone volcanoconiosis. It is one of the only words I can say correctly, so, so you're, I'm going to say it as many times as I can. And it rhymes with supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Oh my God, it does. That's so, oh, that's sad. Anyway, so, so hard words tend to be these words that, like P45, that people think of as being spelling bee words or words that are really, um, you know, any kind of French borrowing or anything like that. Or arcane or specific to a certain field like chemistry or physiology, all those little parts of the body, all those little muscles. Right. And those are, those are hard for normal folks, but actually to define those is really simple. Very easy because they generally mean one and only one thing and they often fall into a paradigm. Oh yeah. And they, not just a paradigm, but they're very, uh, syntactically clear. So you know, for instance, that P45 is a noun and you don't have to wonder, is this a conjunction or an adverb? Or Could maybe it it's be both? an interjection? <laughs> <laughs> Something that you yell when you uh, drop your pencil? Yeah, it could also be an interjection. Kidding. Yeah. It's, oh. it's very syntactically clear, as Corey said. Right. So, so those words are actually a cinch to define because their uses are all consistent, they're syntactically clear, 
you spend almost no time on them as a lexicographer. Hard words for lexicographers are words like the and of <laughs> and uh. uh prepositions are very hard. Uh, words, I mean, we, we've words like take or bring, which have an endless succession of meanings. And yes. Corey can talk about uh, defining words like that. Mm-hmm. The simpler a word is in terms of its spelling, its shortness, uh, usually is an indication of how difficult or time-consuming it can be to define. Yeah, the the way I like to put it is the words that you don't even think of as words are the ones that are the hardest to define. So words like but, where it's not just that but gets used a lot, but it gets used in a lot of ways that are really kind of mushy. You can say, well, that that's kind of adverbial. That's kind of prepositional. That's kind of conjunctive. And you have to make these weird distinctions when you're dividing up the evidence to say, Okay, even though this is really a conjunctive adverb and this is this one is really an adverbial conjunction, they're both kind of similar, so I'm going to smush them together and I'm just going to pick a part of speech. Fun fact, the mm. traditional eight parts of speech as you were taught by your language arts instructor are a lie. I know linguists who are like, we should have 28 parts of speech or 27 parts of speech. and Or two. Or two. <laughs> Depending on whether, yeah. Yeah. That's Everything's sure. an adjunct. Um, right. No, it it, it 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 sometimes words like but and yet uh, you can't entirely compartmentalize them into a neat category. They don't always fit neatly into a a nice little uh, drawer or compartment. Yeah, in my book, Word by Word: The Secret Life of Dictionaries, which if you haven't bought a copy, you should buy a copy right now. It's even available in paperback. It is, and audiobook and. I think that's it. Kindle. It's it's available wherever wherever you get your books or book-like things. In the book I talk about there's a sentence, what can you do but try? And what's so I talk about, I break down what is but in that sentence. It's and, a pain in the butt. <laughs> it is. And the thing that's the this is part of why these little words are difficult is you know, I go through some, you know, nerd pyrotechnics to try and figure out is this actually an adverb? Is it a conjunction? Is it a preposition? And I decide that it is a conjunction. And I then I asked my colleague, Emily Brewster, this is a conjunction, right? And she looked at it and she said, no, this is a preposition. And we both, you know, we both came to it and we were both like, oh yeah, I totally know English. I'm an expert in English grammar. And we both left this conversation going, I don't actually speak English. What I speak is some weird low German dialect. I don't know anything about grammar. So yeah, I mean, these words are not as cut and dry as people think they are, as your high school language arts teacher tells you they are. I am flashing mentally to pyrotechnics at the office. I'm I'm picturing all these people walking around the citation room in Springfield, Massachusetts with little sparklers. (laughs) That would be dangerous because there's no sprinkler system in the building upstairs because if it ever went off accidentally, it would ruin 200 years of citational evidence. But so would a fire. Oh, yeah. But, you know, there's less chance of a fire, I guess then I don't know. Don't ask me. It's weird and I don't understand it. Uh, but so, but is a good example of a word that doesn't fall into clear-cut uh, pre-established parts of speech. 
uh, the, uh, th- that leads us to two forks. Uh, the first fork <laughs> being, why bother then? Why do dictionaries tell you whether a word is a noun or an adjective? Actually, nouns and adjectives and verbs are fairly clear cut, but right. not always. Uh, but these, these conjunctions versus adverbs versus prepositions, why do dictionaries show them then? Dictionaries show you that because you expect dictionaries to do that. That's something that dictionaries uh, started doing with the rise in general literacy. So this gets a little bit into the history of English dictionaries. Early English dictionaries back to the 1500s, 1600s were basically just lists of hard words. Glossaries. They were glossaries. They often had no definition. Uh, They were just lists of hard words that every educated gentleman should know. And they were put together by other educated gentlemen for educated gentlemen. And copied from each other. Right. (laughs) Plagiarism is a longstanding tradition in lexicography. So the thing is, is, is as dictionaries sort of evolved, they evolved because literacy started booming in the 1700s, 1800s. And sort of these lower class slobs, like Steve and I, we're both lower class slobs, right? We come from humble beginnings, yes. (laughs) You're so much nicer than I am. Um, But people like us would gain literacy. It was no longer a a marker of the aristocracy to have education. And as more people became educated, dictionaries started showing more stuff because they ended up being didactic tools. So one of the things that happened was as literacy increased and as dictionaries sought to be something that people who were learning English both as a native language and as a foreign language, we're looking to is they started including these smaller words and we needed categories for these words. You had to say, we had noun and verb. I think those were two of the earliest. And then we added adjective later. And But you have to explain what is, but what is it? How does it function? And, And that's really sort of where the parts of speech came from is trying to describe and categorize the function of these little words. So that's part of why we show you, that's why we spend so much time trying to figure out is but a conjunction or a preposition or an adverb, or maybe it's all three. And you just just have to make these divisions that don't really exist in speech, but people expect it. So that's one kind of hard word. The other kind of hard word is a word that we would all take for granted, but has so many meanings that have to be pulled mm-hmm. apart, of, like run or take. Oh, God. <laughs> and Corey can also <laughs> speak to uh, that. So uh, when we were revising the Collegiate Dictionary for the 11th edition, I ended up revising the entry for take. And I ended up revising it entirely by accident. I wasn't supposed to. These words get pulled out of the general defining batches for jerks like me and are given to senior editors to do. And at that point, I had only been in lexicography for a couple of years. But take, for whatever reason, wasn't yanked from the general batches. So I signed out take. I spent a month on it. And you just go down this rabbit hole because you th- you think that it's very simple, right? How, how many meanings can take have? Me, you know take can have 107 distinct meanings. That's how many uh, different senses are entered into the dictionary. And those are just the ones that have enough use to enter. How many idioms does take have? Take has so many idioms that you don't think about that you now have to start cataloging. What does take a back seat mean? 
What does take a break mean? Is that an idiom? No, that's not an idiom. What about give and take? Does that go at take or does that go at give? And it's just, you just sort of lose yourself down this rabbit hole where you can't do anything but try and figure out. And how do do you go about breaking up take into its 109 senses? What's what's the process? It's sort of a nutshell of your chapter on take, I guess. (laughs) So back then, uh, we were in this very weird state where half of the citations that we used were in print and half of them were in the database. And so we were doing this weird hybrid thing where you're using print citations on index cards and then using the database. So what you have to do is you get a you get a shoebox full of index cards and you read the index card and you try and figure out if the contextual meaning of the word take as presented in each individual citation is covered by the entry and you just start making piles on your desk. So one pile for every separate sense, and then any new meaning gets a different pile. So by the time I had sorted, I hadn't even defined, I was just sorting out the citations. I think I had like 150 piles on my desk, under my desk, on the top of my you know CPU, in the keyboard, in my pencil drawer. That's how you that's how you do it. And even if you're using a database or you're using marking software, you're still sort of using mental piles. That's the only way that you can do it. So that is uh, what a lexicographer would call a hard word. Another category <laughs> are um, something as basic as colors. How do you define blue? How do you define green? How uh. do you define red? You can list things while, you know, the sky is blue, but not always. Apples right. are red, but not always. Or you can go with a scientific approach. But how do you scientifically define color? And it is at this point, I want to bring out the the, the the wonderful wit of Steve Martin, the actor who in 1999 wrote a piece for the New Yorker called uh, The Disgruntled Lexicographer, <laughs> a disgruntled former lexicographer. Oh, yeah. Uh, in this, he uh, was playing a, a, a former lexicographer who either went bonkers or as a way of telling his publisher, F.U., when he left, redefined the word mutton. <laughs> and the entire essay is just a list of like 100 definitions of mutton. I will uh, read the first five. Uh, one, the flesh of fully grown sheep. Two, a glove with four fingers. <laughs> Three, two discharged muons. Four, seven English tons. Five, one who mutinies. <laughs> Why this is relevant uh, is uh, later on in this description, uh, he talks about this uh, woman who falls in love with him because he's a dictionary editor. And so we get, uh, and, and this gets relevant in a moment, uh, 32, I would take her to my motel room and teach her the meaning of love. 33, I would use the American heritage out of spite and read all the definitions. 34, <laughs> then I would read out of the Random House some of my favorites among those that I worked on. The, just try it. <laughs> Blue, give it a shot and don't use the word nanometer. <laughs> So Corey's laughing, I'm laughing, because if you look at color definitions in most dictionaries, you will see reference to nanometers because the color definitions are defined in part by their wavelength mm-hmm. in the spectrum. Right. Uh, you can say that blue is the color of the sky, or you can say it's between X and Y nanometers in the visible spectrum, which right. doesn't really help the average reader. Yeah, this is part of when, you know, I so I'm actually writing a second book about color and about how hard it is to define colors. And this is the thing is that, you know, there's actually no 
really accessible way to accurately describe colors. Even the Roy G. Biv, you know, I mean, the most accurate way is the scientific way where you're talking about nanometers. I can't even say it. Nanometers. (laughs) Nanometers. Anyway, you're talking about nanometers and the visible spectrum, and that assumes a certain level of knowledge that most people who are going to look up the word orange or red just don't have. And different cultures break up the color spectrum in different ways. Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, let me tell you about Himba. Himba is a language that is spoken by a people of the same name. They are from Namibia, I believe, and they are a nomadic tribe, and they have six color categories that are mostly, their color names are mostly based on not hue, which is what ours are based on, but on saturation and shading, tone. So they have They have words for uh, bright, white, yellow, bright green. They have, that's one word. They have one word that describes dark browns, dark purples, dark reds. They have another word that describes mostly greens and a handful of blues. They have another word that describes mostly yellows, some greens, some blues. So, So yeah, the idea of trying to find a definition that is universal and is also comprehensible, is impossible. And even, I mean, we'll get away from the Roy G. Biv. <laughs> I had to look at the word taupe for one of our dictionaries, actually our learner's dictionary, which is for people who are learning English as a foreign language. And so you want to make that definition simple. And I thought, well, taupe is like tan, except I can't say it's like tan because it's not tan. So what I did was I was like, I'm going to just find, I mean, I looked at all of our definitions of taupe previously, and I was like, okay, it's kind of a brownish gray or a grayish brown. It's of this kind of hue and saturation and brightness. I thought, you know, I'll make this easy. I'm just going to look at a whole bunch of color swatches for taupe. And you discover that color names are not consistently applied across industries, across anything. So I was looking at colors that I was like, that's burgundy, that's green, (laughs) that is what I would call beige, that's what I would call tan. I would love to be that person who invents names for colors at paint stores. Oh, yeah. Paint swatches. Oh, or, yeah. Or, or they've got that Autobot that comes up. They, they, they fed the neural color network. names. <laughs> yeah, and they came up with all these wonderful, weird oh, yeah. color names. Oh, yeah. So so colors are hard to define. Concrete nouns, I think, are kind of hard to define. Don't you think? I think you can go down this rabbit hole because they're also applied really broadly. I know you had to work on... One of the hardest words I defined early on, uh, this was one of the, it was sitting on my list of things that needed to be reviewed. It was one of the last things I finally started working on for the fourth edition in the late 90s, because every time I came to it in my routing list, I just wanted to bang my head against the desk. (laughs) Uh, And that is the word town, (laughs) T-O-W-N. In the third edition of the American Heritage Dictionary, there was a fairly... New England-centric concept of what town might be. And town... If so what? So what's the New England-centric concept of town? Well, in, in, in New England... Well, first of all, in, in New England, you've got counties, right? Right. And then within counties, you've got towns or cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, every square inch of that county 
is taken up in some city or town. It's incorporated, is, right? Uh, yeah. Somehow, yeah, yeah. And there's there 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 are, there are governmental definitions as to what constitutes a city, what constitutes a town. A lot of it has to depend, you know, on its charter, that kind of thing. Huh. But in the Midwest, counties are divided into townships. Uh, in Michigan, <laughs> for example, these are six miles by six miles because the entire state was mapped out in the 1800s on this massive grid. Seriously? So, oh yeah, a the, township is a six by six mile square. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? Yes. Um, and, and 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 where I grew up in the in, in the flattest of lands. There was a road every mile. My township was almost a perfect grid, six by six grid of uh, of, of roads every mile. Uh, one road kind of deviated to go around a lake. Uh, behind my house, there was a, for- a woods, uh-huh. which I didn't realize later was planted. So like all of the trees were in rows. I'm, I, I'm just so grid centric. <laughs> That when I moved from Chicago to Boston, oh my, my head exploded because oh, yeah. I couldn't get anywhere. Yeah, because Boston's a hub city. So. Yeah, and Chicago's on a Cartesian grid. Uh, so <laughs> I love that you called it a Cartesian grid. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so in Michigan, counties are split up into townships. And then the township land is a square except for if there are cities or villages the land oh. that is taken up by a city or a village is not part of the township. Okay. There is no town. There are no towns in Michigan. I mean, you call things towns, but legally right. you're a township, a city, or a village. And town is just this generic, uh, it's either a, a part, of, you know, going downtown, uptown, right. that kind of thing. Uh, but And then in other parts of the country, townships are different. They work a little differently in Wisconsin. And town is used differently in different parts of the country. Oh, yeah. I mean, so in in Colorado, where I grew up, you know, I grew up on the Front Range. So you had cities, and that was kind of it. Like, I grew up in the city of Wheat Ridge. If you were a town, we would refer to mountain towns. Those are like little places that are in the mountains. Or if it's a town, it's like a ghost town. Like Leadville is a town. But people who live in Leadville, it's a city. It's We didn't have towns. We didn't have townships. We didn't have boroughs. We didn't have any of that, right. John. And so a place like Nebraska, which I assume works like Colorado, you've got <laughs> county land. And if you're not in a city, you're just in county land. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so it, it basically different parts of the country were settled at different times. It takes maneuvering and acrobatics to to show all of these flavors of what a town can be. Right, because you have to not only do these legal definitions where, you know, in, in New England, a town is a, you know, I don't know, incorporated area of whatever square footage or of however many people. But you also have to get through, like, you know, my uses of mountain town or, you know, what town do you live in? Or, I mean, I... And in so I live in New Jersey, and in New Jersey you have boroughs, townships, cities, towns. I mean, it's just like, so what's the difference between a township and a town? I have no idea. I don't think most people have any idea. And it depends on what state you live in. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And, and then, and then s- did you have to deal with uptown and downtown? Well, yes. Oh, uh, the, 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 both as a noun, as an adverb. Um, I'm driving uptown. Uh, but not, and, oh, and not just uptown and downtown, but then also upstate. What states have upstates? Not oh all states God. have upstates. <laughs> she, Illinois doesn't have an upstate. Oh it my has God, a downstate. Right, because right, everything is already upstate. Right, the, 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 yeah. the main population center, Chicago, is to the north. So you can go downstate, but you don't go upstate. Whereas in New York, uh, the population center is down, down in the state, south part. So you don't 
say downstate, you yeah. say upstate. So there's upstates, there's downstates. Uh, and then you have some states where that's not, that doesn't apply. Mm-hmm. Like Colorado, you don't have upstate, downstate. You have front range and then you have west range. In Michigan, like, you don't go upstate, you you go north. You right. go up north. <laughs> right, right. What do you do in Tennessee? What do you do in lateral states? I guess you go side to side. Do you? Mo- towards west? the mountains? I don't know. I, I don't know. What if you're all mountain? What if you're all mountain? Oh, uh, <laughs> up, up. Up, uphill, downhill. I don't know. Right. Oh, oh and well, that, Jersey down the shore. Down the shore, which I think is elevation and not direction, because down is east. Right. Ugh. Oh, same thing in Maine. Right. You go down east. Right. And yeah, and that's not south or east. It is elevation wise. So define down. Define up. <laughs> uh, the cardinal directions are easy. Usually, you use reference to the sunrise uh, and words like right and left. You know, like what. Uh, you know, either what where your heart is in is in your body relative right. to something else, or where the sunrise is. Yeah, yeah. But up, down, those are oh, those are terrible. The so one of the words that that I had to define, and this is relevant because the way the idea of orientation and where sort of what's your orienting point when you write a definition bit me in the butt in a different way. So for Webster's new unabridged dictionary, which is only online, I ended up having to completely revise the entry for God, which is both existentially terrifying and lexicographically terrifying. So in the the old unabridged, the third, God was divided up into two different entries for reasons that are stupid. And it was... Um, written mostly by a Paulist Catholic, which is fine. And if you know anything about religion, you can read the entry and you can know that the guy who wrote it was a Paulist Catholic. There there was a Lutheran who helped with a couple of them. But it it's really, it was, you wouldn't think that the entry for God needed updating, but the entry for God needed updating. Because it didn't cover a whole bunch of not just theological uses of God, but the entry didn't cover any of the discourse particle uses of God, like, oh my God, or dear God, or any of that. None of that was covered. So I had to work on God. It took me four months. And this was the point at which I realized that sometimes these, the the way that you define, you know, people who write dictionaries like to talk a lot about how we don't do what's called real defining. We do lexical defining. Real defining is philosophical stuff. That's answering the question, what is beauty? What is truth? And that's trying to find the essential nature of a thing. And we don't do that. We only care about what the contextual meaning of a word is. So instead of saying, what is beauty? We would say, what does the word beauty mean in that goal is a beauty? Or... What does love mean in I love pizza? We're in the hockey Stanley Cup finals. Goals are on my mind. So anyway, so when I'm defining the word God, I suddenly realize that those lexical definitions we do when we say, let's pray to God, what does God mean in that, in that particular use comes real close to the real definition of what is the essential nature of God. So Yeah, I spent four months and I spent most of my time agonizing, just ridiculous amounts of agonizing over individual words. Can I use ineffable? 
I don't know, can I use omnipresent if I'm talking about the God of the Abrahamic religions? Can I do that? Should I even center different meanings in different religious viewpoints? Is that too specific? What about religious viewpoints that are minority religion viewpoints in America? What about the Greek gods? What about the Norse gods? What about the Roman gods? What about the Zoroastrian gods? <laughs> like, it just, I, yeah, it was bananas. I couldn't do it. It was four well, months. you did do it. I did do it. I had to do it. That was my job. Four months of writing down words and then crossing them out and then writing down words and crossing them out. Um, I spent all of this time coming up with these tiny definitions. And then I would say, all right, I'm going to email this definition to, I have, you know, bunches of friends who are theologians and philosophers and teachers and, uh, you know, some priests and rabbis and imams. And I would send these definitions out and say, just tell me if it's wrong. Like, don't tell me what God is. Just tell me if it's wrong. And then I would get 2,000 word essays on the nature of God and, and, you know, God within the tradition, which are not helpful. I just need to know, is it wrong? Am I offending somebody? Probably, yes, all and, of those things. And it's worth pointing out, not just one editor looks at every word, or rather, every word is looked at by more than one editor. Right. So, you know, the 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 test that Corey's discussing here is, you know, the, just the first drafts. It still is seen by other editors. Uh, so, it, it the, the the process is long and involved. Yeah, and you, and I had to leave little notes for the copy editors, the editors coming after me, saying things like, "Do not change any instance of the word being, person, nature, or essence in any of these definitions, or we will offend everybody in the universe." Yes. So you've got hard words like God and blue and of and the, and then you have easy words like that 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 that. 27-syllable thing that you said that rhymes with supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Pneumono-ultramicroscopic silico-volcano-coniosis. Yes. And that's something that uh, Dick Van Dyke's character could have had. Yeah, he that's was a right, because he was a chimney sweep. He probably did have it. They, and they biffed just, an opportunity for they the rhyme. Didn't. So, so here's a question. Are you a lumper or a splitter? Ugh. Um... <laughs> I, I, First, I, we should we should say yes. what lumping and splitting are. So when you're a dictionary writer, you tend towards one of two extremes. You tend towards splitting or lumping. Um, splitters are people who want to write a different definition for every nuance of meaning a word has. And lumpers are people who want to take all of these words that have very similar uses and write just one definition that covers a bunch of Sub, sub, sub meanings of a word. I tend to lump followed by a comma, especially yada, 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 <laughs> um, which gives you the central thing, but also points out some differences within it. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm not a fan of 27 subsenses. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to plow through. Um, it. I guess I, 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 I lump, but followed up with some splittage. Oh, so you're balanced. I I tend to split, but I will say that working on the definition for God made me a lumper. I was just like, nope, here we go. All of these into one definition. I would like to end on a note on one of the simplest definitions I ever wrote. Ooh, yes. And that's for sump pump. <laughs> yeah, lay it on me. A pump that removes liquid from a sump. Oh, that's beautiful. 
Remember, rate us on iTunes. Uh, send us tweets. We are at Fiat Lex Podcast on Twitter and on Facebook, though I have to tell you, I don't check the Facebook page often because I just don't check Facebook often. But if you do Facebook, you'll find us. You'll, you'll find a presence there. Maybe not us, but you'll find a presence there. So hit us up. Let us know what you think. Thank you. Bye.